Politics have become extremely divided in the past few decades. Polarization runs rampant between both Democrats and Republicans. Many factors have led into that, but that's a discussion for another time. The main subject we're here to discuss is how media, more specifically digital media, amplifies political campaigns. A sort of digital war, you can say. Hello, my name is Aiden Carter, AC for short, and I'm here for the first episode of Delved In. I've been interested in the topic of how media affects politics a little over a year ago. I wrote a paper on how social media invited political polarization, based that on a short documentary. However, I felt it could go further in audio form. Today, I want to dissect a normally ignored form of organizing, digital media. You see politics and media everywhere. Your phone, Twitter, Facebook, television. Even 2020 presidential candidate Julian Castro has a TikTok. I'm just waiting for Amy Klobuchar or Cory Booker to have some ASMR on YouTube. Point is, you can't escape it. Campaigns before Sunday primarily used television and radio to reach out to voters. Remember this ad from the Clinton campaign that ran on televisions? It's 3 a.m. and your children are safe and asleep. But there's a phone in the White House and it's ringing. Something's happening in the world. Your vote will decide who answers that call. Whether it's someone who already knows the world's leaders, knows the military, someone tested and ready to lead in a dangerous world. It's 3 a.m. and your children are safe and asleep. Who do you want answering the phone? I'm Hillary Clinton and I approve this message. Ads like these were spread out on television to court voters with a message. However, Barack Obama's campaign set a historic precedent with the medium. His campaign went digital, organizing through his website and producing web ads like these with celebrities. Yes, we can. It was the call of workers organized. Women reached for the ballots. A president who chose the moon as our new frontier. And a king who took us to the mountaintop. Pointed the way to the promised land. Throughout the 2008 election, Obama and his digital team managed to mobilize thousands of voters across the country. The president itself, however, remained somewhat consequential. The 2012 presidential election was more balanced, logically speaking, as both the Obama and Romney teams utilized the internet medium to micro-target and mobilize voters. Facebook pages like Occupy Democrats and the Comical Conservative were organized as partisan messages to supporters of both candidates and entailed an almost web war among media users. However, the 2016 election is what made digital media mean the most. While the Clinton campaign certainly used digital media to boost voters and micro-target potential support, the Trump campaign, meanwhile, in part through Trump's digital media director, Brad Parscale, took it to the next level. I, I'm not on Parscale's spectrum. I'm far and away. But Parscale realized vindictive yet smart measures to reach out to potential support, as you will hear later on today. Facebook was the campaign's main ammunition, targeting support through advertising and reaching out through assistance from Cambridge Analytica. The campaign managed to effectively use digital media much more extensively than the Clinton campaign. I spoke with fellow student Kinga Schlatskitz on her thoughts on how digital media has had a polarizing effect on politics. And it weakens our trust in institutions. We all have to learn how to separate the information we see in social media. And that would go through educating students and kids and young people how to sort through all the crap, excuse me my language, that is posted on social media, how to fact check it, how to make sure that the information we consume from those sources is actually factual, does have a standing. I discussed the same topic with fellow professor Gaston Alonso, who teaches the political science wing of Brooklyn College. Here, 
Alonzo backs up King's take and discusses how it's not just media that affects our political structures. I think it's better to think about the polarization in terms of what it's reflecting. Yes, it's reflecting a media environment that sort of pushes people to the ideological edges. It's reflecting a political structure that does the same thing. It's reflecting an economy that pushes people to the coast or to the center. But it's also reflecting really serious conflicts of interest. The ideological polarizations are not about figments of people's minds. They're about what matters and doesn't matter in people's lives and whose interest is going to win out. Both Kinga and Professor Alonzo are right in their takes. However, Alonzo's take is, is significant in this sense. Reaching as far back as the introduction of the Fairness Doctrine in the 1940s, media had been heavily skewered. When the Fairness Doctrine was rolled back by the Reagan administration, it opened the floodgate for several institutions to influence political polarization in the likes of conservative and liberal media outlets. Unleashing your loony leftist partisans in the most blatant political effort to impeach a duly elected president in history. Embraced the coarsening of culture where, where the truth means absolutely nothing. Conservative values mean absolutely nothing. Increased polarization has been a growing sentiment throughout the country since the 1960s. Media certainly helped fuel that fire, regardless of political alignment. I want to discuss that point in a future episode, though. But keep in mind that this still helps set the backdrop for the topic of digital media. Many campaigns and consulting firms have dramatically shifted resources to digital media. I recently spoke with the president of Engage, Eric Rapridge, over the phone. Engage deals with public affairs ranging from companies such as Smithsonian and Google, but also managing web development for the House Republicans. During the interview, we spoke on an array of topics, including polarization, data and digital strategy, and the growing wariness of over technology use in media. Many communications departments today are integrated. There is no, there's the, the line between digital and non-digital is very blurry because there are so many different components that have to be considered, especially now with data and analytics. Have a better understanding of who your users are, what they're trying to accomplish, and then produce something that's going to ultimately be a, a bigger value add for them is something that's organizational. It flows out of the, sort of out of the top uh, and impacts digital, but impacts everything as well. And Digital helps inform those decisions, but so does polling and other sources of non-digital uh, reach. Eric specifically dives into an interesting discussion with digital strategy and its significance to him. It's a fair statement to be made. That there's, a, there's a couple, I think, nuggets of wisdom in there. The first one is that digital strategy, it's a very broad term and people use it differently. But the truth is you're looking at a holistic approach to one's digital efforts. How do you produce things for those who are using your organization, your organization, product or organization's information? How do you understand those folks and create something for them online? It's going to ultimately be both useful for, for what you're trying to accomplish as well as useful for them. And then how do you, how do you find them and make sure that they know about that which you're producing? And all of the things that go into that, I think, make up, when we're talking about digital assets, make up digital. Before we move on, I want to clarify what echo chambers are, for those who don't know. These are reinforced bubbles on digital platforms that are widely seen on Twitter and Facebook. They allow those of a specific ideology to feel comfortable with others who share their own view. This, in turn, exiles out those who oppose that mindset and contributes heavily towards political polarization. Eric made an interesting point to tie these tools into the public sphere. As a side note, try to find today's keyword. So I think in general, it, the, the platforms might be reinforcing principles that have an opportunity to, to be more solidly re realized based on the fact that the connections are so, uh, so real-time. And, and this is my personal opinion again. It seems like more and more individuals are looking for um, 
or they have been looking for an echo chamber. They're looking to solidify their place within their own social networks and social constructs more than they are um, to really like delve into a lot of the topics at hand. And so um, I think a lot of these tools are allowing people to um, just do that at a more rapid level and do it more publicly. So things that might've been happening at coffee shops and you know dinner parties are now being taken place in a public forum. As a side note, I was jumping with joy after he said my two keywords, echo chambers and delve, hence the name, especially with echo chambers that politics and media have had a part in creating. I wanted to get further insight into how companies utilize the power of digital media. And so I reached out to a lot of firms. After contacting Revolution Messaging, I got in touch with Keegan Gudis. He agreed to speak in person in Washington, DC. I booked a hotel, thankfully I had enough points, surprisingly bought a bus ticket, and made my way to Washington, D.C. from New York. Revolution Messaging is a full-service digital agency that leads advertising and digital strategy for political campaigns and organizations. Keegan Gudis, formerly Bernie Sanders' Director of Digital Advertising at Revolution in 2016, and works as a managing partner. I had an interesting discussion with Keegan as we spoke about the current state of digitized campaigning. A lot of people argue that, that Twitter isn't that effective for political advertising. I, I disagree. We used it a lot uh, during, during Bernie's campaign. Um, you know, I, I don't think that he would have gotten the same reach during uh, the debates if not for Twitter advertising. We wouldn't have been able to fundraise as much if not for Twitter advertising. So that takes away like a, a, a strength of, of, of you know, campaigns similar to Bernie that appeals to the, the grassroots, to you know, appeals to like the populist left. I mean, like honestly, I, I I use both Facebook and Twitter, but I do use Twitter more for political information. Yeah, yeah, and you're you're not alone. <laughs> Sometimes it drives people crazy, obviously, because yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, people being angry online on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, Google just changed their now. For those who know, uh, this interview and episode uh, here in is taking Google, place uh, in a centralized important part of the 2020 presidential election and there's been a lot of different talk about how each facet of campaigning is becoming more integral for instance we touched on the topic of tom steyer who is currently running for the democratic nomination the dynamics of the race that much he has you know there was a certain level of investment that helped him out he was able to get on the stage because of it um, but like to your point, you're, you keep seeing the ads and you're not changing your support. You're not all of a sudden waking up one day and being like, you know who's a great choice for president? Tom Steyer. Um, I mean, so it makes me more annoyed. I had to keep watching it over again. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, after a while, it, it, it has a negative effect. Um, so, you know, advertising is always, is always used in conjunction with something else. It, like in a vacuum isn't enough mm -hmm. in politics to, to change people's perceptions. Moving on from Tom Steyer, as we've probably got sick of hearing about that, we've had to deal with Facebook and Twitter as a very rambunctious, I guess you could say frenemy. It certainly helped Obama, as we have discussed earlier. It certainly helped Trump. So it helps and hurts both sides of the political spectrum. Brad Pascal used Facebook to a large extent. The Clinton campaign refused help from them because they viewed that Facebook would be a hindrance rather than a help. Facebook, meanwhile, was able to employ dark ads by the Trump campaign 
The Trump campaign used dark ads, commonly referred to as ads that disappear roughly after you see them. Hence the name dark, so they'll go dark afterwards. That's been a, a large problem for both sides, as if an ad is certainly to a distaste of the public or it is falsely advertised, we won't know what that ad said. However, we had, thanks Keegan, I had, had the links in order to see that. So I wanted to have you listen to what he talked about with, with the significance of dark ads and especially how that's going to affect the next, the next race. So it's kind of like a way to combat dark ads? Yeah, so it's a way to combat dark ads and also, like, to your point earlier, campaigns that either are incorporating misinformation or disinformation, you know, you can hold them more accountable now um, as opposed to never seeing never seeing the, the ad and the public not being aware of it existing. You know, Google just changed their policies and that's going to have impacts on the election in terms of how you can target people through Google's network and, you know, Facebook's weighing more changes as well. The other thing that's really interesting that has changed from the positive light is a number of these platforms now archive uh, political ads, which didn't happen in 2016. So we actually, for the first time, can see what political campaigns are running on Facebook and Google. Yeah, I'll send you the links if you want to like look through it. But they have anybody who's, who's registered as a political advertiser with Google or Facebook their ads are getting archived and they're searchable and you can track how much candidates are spending and what kind of creative they're they're running and there's just a, a limited information about how they're targeting the ads. Outside the past few presidential elections, there were other elections that have a much stake. In New York, there have been several key political battles between the establishment and the progressive wings of the Democratic Party. Before the rise of digital media, campaigns relied heavily on money, advertising, and issues. They still do, but those factors have increased dramatically since 2016. After speaking with these prominent individuals, I wanted to get in touch with someone running for office. That got me into the crosshairs of Lindsey Boylan, a candidate for the 10th Congressional District, a seat currently held by the House Judiciary Chairman Gerald Nadler. Although I myself live in the 10th District, I haven't paid too much close of attention to the race, mostly in the, on the higher-up races such as the presidential election, of course, and the Senate back in 2018, those kind of have been what I've been seeing more. So in a way, I've been a little ignorant to what those elections have seen, especially with this with this talk right now. But after researching into her campaign, I wanted to get in contact with her, especially with such a unique campaign as hers. I was able to sit down and speak with her on the topic of her campaign and our thoughts of how digital media affects her own. Um, you know, people, for whatever reason, I'm not used to sharing that much, but people like to like to see you that you're you know you know a normal person dorky person in <laughs> yeah. my case and you know maybe i'm what i do with my daughter and pick her up from school or maybe this conversation there will be something online and people want to see that because they want to have a sense of who you are um that matters a great deal if you know people's ability to trust you so the social media has been extremely helpful i think it's you know a, a natural fit for someone a millennial an older millennial of my generation mm -hmm. who um, grew up with Facebook. My my year was the year um, Facebook came online, actually when I was at Wellesley and I guess that group of young men were at Harvard, including Mark Zuckerberg. So I, I, I grew up with an awareness of these things. They've obviously changed a tremendous amount in terms of how we use them, but I'm, I feel they've been a real benefit. Um, Whenever the topic of mental health is addressed, it isn't taken up with that much of importance. Lindsay goes on to talk about how she was able to use digital media to her advantage and broaden out that that very important topic for those to listen to. Big role in us being able to level the playing field to get that message out there. You know, we 
what you want to do when you're um you know when you're talking about a mental health agenda um i did an op-ed in buzzfeed it, it it can have the traction if people read online but it really gets out there and connects you to people who care about these issues through twitter right um all of the major journalists pundits political you know followers are on twitter so as complicated a relationship as I have to Twitter, because it's <laughs> too much a part of my life, um, if when used correctly, mm -hmm. can really help uh, level the playing field. Uh, Her own campaign tied in with social media platforms such as Twitter. As in the last few months, she, alongside progressive challengers for seats across country, have been trying to get Twitter to act on getting them a blue check. A blue check is essentially a verification that they themselves are official. And a lot of them, including Lindsay, has been talking about how the significance of that means that they aren't seen as as real. They are not a real challenger to those to those races and elections. And she herself has been able to talk about how exactly she had a role in playing in having Twitter step down and give her and along with other people those political blue advertising for you know that that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. um, with the broader conversations we've been hearing about in terms of misleading or lies in politics. But advertising was a way for, you know, with so small, relatively yeah, low cost yeah. for challengers to get their name out there. Yeah. So when that happened, I think there was also a lot of pressure to say, OK, you're focused on advertising and you're or you're focused on politics and social media. Why don't you level the playing field? So it, I think it became we were chipping away mm. at their ability to ignore it for for a long time. And uh you know, they get to look like they've made a good choice as opposed to some of the choices that, for instance, Facebook has made. And uh, I think it's going to be critically important for technology companies, social media apps, you know, whatever we're talking about to show that they're being responsive to consumers, um, particularly in the next few years, as there will be conver conversations around privacy, around antitrust, all sorts of questions. At, at a, at a I also spoke to her about how if she were to take on the job, she would be taking on her constituents. And especially with a rapidly changing landscape of digital media, she would be taking on the, the issues that these people have wanted to speak about. There's no incentive for a local, you know, local community leaders or local, you know, um, writers to anger their local congressmen by covering me. You mm -hmm. know, I've had a few cases where people have me on their podcasts or a local journalist writes about me and they hear from the congressman or his office that they're very angry that he's that they've that, that the journalist has done this um, and communicated with me and elevated me. If you're having conversations with national journalists, they don't have that same ability to mm -hmm. threaten your you know, the, the the incumbents don't have the same capacity to threaten to sort of um, make it uncomfortable for journalists to write about you. So in many ways, f being able to communicate a message to broader audiences helps you communicate again more locally, which mm. is an odd sort of way to see these things, but it, it's, it's certainly been true for everything I've been doing. I've researched this topic for the past year now. It's a topic that constantly evolves alongside new technology and strategies. I've had to redo my paper several times because of having to keep track of new events unfolding. The short documentary I made only a few months ago, that one is could be viewed as obsolete if seen too late. Hearing alongside these people and other people in the last few months, I've had unique perspectives from these people. Entrepreneurs like Eric feel the lines between digital and non-digital have become intertwined 
to a large extent. The line between digital and non-digital is very blurry. Strategists like Keegan use technology and digital media facet to their advantage to help organizations, both political and nonpartisan. A pathway to making the, the best usage of this technology for... And leaders like Lindsay use digital platforms to broaden support and bring to light issues normally not discussed by the wider public. You know, it, it, it changes the entire interface of visibility and legitimacy. Everyone from students to professors, to entrepreneurs, to strategists, to leaders, each have their own perspective into the realm of digital media. Some have seen these as more beneficial components, while others see it as more malicious. I've discussed the importance of the previous few presidential elections in this episode, especially with all the people discussed here today. However, this next election may be more important than the last, especially with rapidly evolving landscapes, both on and off the tech field. 2020 is going to be a true test of all sentiments expressed here today. I touched on topics about how Facebook and Twitter have been trying to desensitize how advertising is shown and how Twitter is trying to back off of funding for ads, how to making sure that platforms are trying to express themselves as nonpartisan, while others like Facebook have been trying to express themselves as fully partisan, trying to win back both sides. Only time will tell since we last delved into such a debate. Until then, this has been the first episode of Delved In. As always, this has been AC, Aiden Carter for short, and please don't become too pessimistic, or optimistic for that matter, of the future, because we will not know exactly where we're headed until we know exactly where we see the road. I want to thank the support of King Slatskeets and Professor Gaston Alonzo of Brooklyn College. I also want to express great thanks to Engage President Eric Reprich, Managing Partner and Advertising's Head of Revolution Messaging, Keegan Gouda, and New York 10 Congressional Candidate Lindsey Boylan for all your support and discussion throughout. For those who want to listen to the uncut interviews with Keegan Gudis and Eric Rabridge, those special episodes will air closely alongside I do caution you to still listen to it as they both gave very intelligent answers about how different topics of digital media and politics and campaigning were very much interesting. And even though I myself did not sound very formal, I do want to express that you still give a listen. I do want to add that the sit-down interview with Lindsay Boylan will also air in conjunction with this. Unless you've already listened to that before this one, which in that case, thank you for continued support, but I want to express to you all that you continue to listen in and continue to delve in. Thank you.